So the plan for today is to um, finish this chapter on text 35 and then uh, I think we'll have time to do a review of the chapter because we've had a number of interruptions and we may have forgotten what was there in the beginning. So where where we are right now is uh, yeah we're, we're we're starting with text 35 in this chapter. Uh, what's happened? On um, uh, text 34, from there to the end of the chapter, ekanta uh, bhakti, pure devotional service is being described. If you remember in this chapter, we gradually worked our way up to it uh, through other processes. And then uh, 32 and 33, uh, uh, Krishna is describing to Uddhava that Bhakti just just by itself bestows all benedictions, whatever you can achieve through any other method automatically comes by bhakti. You don't have to make a separate effort for anything. And then uh, the, the last verse, um, he began describing uh, pure devotion. Uh, he, and he says in 34, because my devotees possess saintly behavior and deep intelligence, they completely dedicate themselves to me and do not desire anything besides me. Indeed, even if I offer them liberation from birth and death, they do not accept it. So now we will continue with uh, the next verse, text number, uh, yeah, text number 35. Read the text. Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya. Nair Apexyam Param Prahur Nishreyasam Analpakam Tasman Nirashisho Bhaktir Nir Apexyasya Me Bhavet. You notice actually in this text a word is almost written exactly repeated, naira pekshan and nira pekshasya. Uh, uh, so that's an important word if it gets declared twice. So it says that, uh, he says here that uh, complete, uh, it is said that uh, complete detachment is the highest state of freedom. Therefore, one who has no personal desires and does not pursue personal rewards, can achieve loving devotional service unto me. Uh, there's a really different translation of this uh, based on Sridhar Swami's commentary uh, because uh, this Naira Apeksham uh, is taken uh, there to refer to the process 
it is said that that process, which is without dependence on other process, is the best process. <laughs> You're talking about the process of bhakti. Right? Where we're here, I mean, literally, what the uh, uh, the way it says here uh, is complete detachment. See, nairapeksham param prahur. It is said that the best is nairapeksham, not desiring anything except devotional service. They translate it here. Uh, but then here it says that complete detachment is the highest stage of freedom in the word for word. Uh, 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 so the highest stages of nairapeksha uh, the word uh, uh, nirapeksha means being indifferent to other things or being desireless uh, or being independent, not caring for anything else. Uh, the word is nirapeksha, but nirapeksha means something that has that quality of nirapeksha. Uh, so here it's translated not desiring anything except devotional service, but in the word for word, and that's in the word for word, but in the running translation, the BBT, they say that complete detachment is the highest stage of freedom. Uh, uh, so the other way to translate it, that process, which is independent, without dependent on any other process, that or result, that's the best process, which at least seems to me to fit in a little better with, a, with the whole tenor of the section. But anyway... Uh, uh, and then uh, it goes on, therefore, one who has no personal desire and does not pursue personal rewards can achieve loving devotional service. Uh, so that, that explains how they, why they say uh, the highest uh, 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 stage of freedom, uh, right? So the person who has no personal desires and does not pursue personal rewards. This other word, uh, uh, um, uh, is nirashisho, uh, nirashishaha. Uh, nirashis means uh, free from desire, uh, because uh, ashis is a blessing or a benediction without wanting blessing or desire from anything else. Uh, uh, and, and so therefore one who has no personal desires and does not pursue personal rewards can achieve loving devotional service the way Banuswami translates it therefore a person who does not desire any reward and does not depend on other processes develops bhakti uh, for me uh, what, what the sense of this, these two words, really uh, is saying that these two things, nirashisha and nirapeksha, what it, what it means that the people who pursue devotional service are free from both material and spiritual selfish desires. Uh, the nirashisha uh, uh, 
means no desires for liberation or sense, or excuse me, no desires of sense gratification or anything else. Uh, so you reject the karma khanda and jnana khanda, no desire for liberation or anything else. Uh, that's I think is is the sense of it. When you say don't desire any reward and don't depend on any other process, uh, means any other process of salvation. So that's a no that'll achieve all things. So just stressing the same thing. Uh, 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 that one who has no personal desire and does not pursue personal rewards. You don't see how that's different, but if you understand one is referring to uh, kind of gross, mater- gross or subtle material desires or personal rewards, meaning, meaning in transcendence, uh, especially liberation. Uh, uh, um, so anyway, the, this word nirapeksha uh, uh, is... Prabhupada explains this word in uh, the commentary in the Majjha 3212. He says, as Srila Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati explains, the word nirapiksha means not being affected by anything material and remaining fixed in the service of the Lord. So he has both of these senses for uh, nirapiksha. And that's how they translate it here in the BBT, not desiring anything except... Uh, devotional service. Uh, uh, so it's a, the, the same as ekanta bhakta, ekantika bhakti. So anyway, the sense of this is is really uh, is that. Uh, then in, in this person, this person who has no uh, ulterior desires. It's just like pure devotional services. Anya abhilasita shunam jnana karmadiya navritam. This is like the purport to this verse. Uh, uh, without any, any extraneous desires, uh, free from karma, jnana, and so on. And that person, uh, uh, that person, uh, bhakti, uh, will arise. Then, 36 uh, goes on to, it goes on to say, Na maye kanta bhaktanam guna dosho bhava gunaha sadunam sammachittanam Vidhe param upeyusham. This is so. This is translated here. Uh, uh, material piety and sin. This is the word guna and dosha. Remember, we've had we've been discussing this for whole courses. This thing, this guna and dosha. Uh, uh, where, where guna means a good quality and dosha means a bad quality. Udbhava uh, arises. It does not arise uh, uh, in this case. The na is there in the beginning. 
uh, cannot exist within my unalloyed devotees. Of this. So it's not there. In the ekanta bhakta, and the single-minded, uh, they always say unalloyed. That was Prabhupada's word. Uh, an alloy means a mixture. When you make steel, you take iron, you mix other things, and therefore it's an alloy. It makes the steel better. But in the case of bhakti, unalloyed means it's pure. There's nothing else in it. Uh, so here, uh, uh, so in this, in, in the pure devotee, the unalloyed devotee, the ekanta, ekanta, the the end is one, one thing, which is Krishna, nothing else. Uh-huh. Then. Uh, 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 Guna dosha udbhava, if you look at the word for word, guna dosha, good and bad, arising from gunaha. <laughs> I mean, gunaha is then in the word for word translated as piety and sin. <laughs> uh, uh, what they're saying is material piety and sin, guna and dosha, which is arises from the good and evil of this world. That's his guna. Huh? Uh, uh, but the other way of translating this uh, is that the gunas is the three modes of nature. And this good and bad arises from the three modes of nature. That that's Sridhar Swami's commentary. That that's the guna. So because it seems weird to me that and so close to each other, guna in one place is uh, good, and right afterwards is piety and sin. <laughs> so I was trying to make sense of this, and then I look at Sridhar Swami's commentary, and I, I can see what they're saying. So from the material modes, if you take guna that way, the modes, it's in the plural, the modes. From those three modes, this idea of good and bad comes about. And uh, the devotees don't have those gunas, which give rise to those qualities of good and bad, the ekanta bhakta. Uh, 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 and so that's what's being described here. Uh, uh, and the, these devotees are, are called, the Enkanta Bhaktas are called sadhus, uh, who are uh, uh, samachittanam. They, are, they have steady consciousness in all circumstances. Uh, and uh, that consciousness which is beyond the material good and bad. They don't see that. Uh, they're beyond, the modes of nature are not in them. Uh, they, they, they um, uh, uh, are steadily fixed on Krishna, but they are samachitta. They are single-mindedness of, of, of uh, meditation. Uh, uh, what they have achieved is beyond, and then it says buddhi, uh, uh, buddhe, but it's buddhi. But here, buddhi, uh, uh, 
uh, is, is glossed, is in the word for word, that which can be conceived by material intelligence. They take it as material intelligence, as beyond that, from uh, of those who achieved this ekanta bhakti to me. Uh, um, yeah, that's beyond. So indeed, such devotees have achieved me, the Supreme Lord, whom beyond anything that be, can be conceived by material intelligence. Uh, Buddhi here means it's the same idea of intelligence that's surveying the material world. So for that reason, uh, this material intelligence. Uh, is described as prakriti because it's it's uh, surveys the whole field of material existence. So it's, it's it's prakriti. That's the way it's it's translated there. So so again, the the two translations and they both arise from the same text legitimately. Uh, in Banu Swami just following Shuddha Swami's commentary. The, people who are translating Hridayananda Maharaj, Gopi Puranadana, they're looking at the same Gaudiya Mutt book of many commentary, many commentary, starting with Sridhar Swami, and so you can pick and choose, as Prabhupada did. So anyway, 36, I'll read the trans Material piety and sin, this is that guna dosha, which arises from the good and evil of the world, or the Udbhava Gunaha, or the material quality, cannot exist within my unalloyed devotees, the Ekanta Bhakta, who being freed from material hankering, uh, uh, that's their translation of Sadhu. You want to know where the material hankering That's just the way they, they refer to sadhus. Who being free from material hankering means steady, maintain steady consciousness in all respects. Samuchita. Indeed, such devotees have achieved me, the Supreme Lord. Again, this is filling in you know, a little bit who am beyond anything that can be conceived by material intelligence. Pandu Swami has a simpler translation. The fully dedicated devotees who see equally everywhere, samachittanam, and who have achieved the Lord, who is superior to prakriti, do not have the gunas which give rise to qualities of good and bad. That's a simpler translation. Uh, uh, so finally we come to the very last verse so this is just describing again this is sort of describing pure devotional service and summarizing the, uh, the what it means to be transcendent if you're in that transcendental position you're not concerned when we conduct the review of this chapter chapter if you've forgotten, you'll see that this is the major concern of Uddhava in the very beginning, who asked, I think, five, uh, there's five verses where he asked uh, Krishna why he's rejecting the Vedas. 
So here, here, this this last uh, thing is a kind of a uh, winding up or summary. Uh, text thirty-seven: Evam etan maya dishtan anutishtanti me pataha shemam vidanti matstanam matstanam yad brahma paramam vidu. So thus. Uh, uh, these uh, these meaning these people who who follow uh, those instructions things that have been instructed by me well let me just read it people who seriously follow these methods of achieving me it is in the plural Anutishtanti they follow these these the means of achieving me which I have personally taught Attains freedom, attain freedom from illusion, and upon reaching my personal abode, they perfectly understand the absolute truth. So that's the, the so those people who follow those the the the, the, the means of achieving these that, that I have de, that have been described by me, uh, they achieve shaman which they translate as free from illusion, you know, yoga shame on security, really. Uh, when Krishna says yoga shame on maham yaham, in the Bhagavad Gita, yoga and shema, yoga means the ability to acquire whatever you need, and shema means the secure protection of what you possess. It's actually, in the dictionary, it's kind of a business term. <laughs> And the, the dictionary says that uh, a conventional greeting to a Vaisha is shemam te. May your <laughs> property be secure <laughs> and your wealth be secure, be protected. So it's getting what you require, getting what you need, yoga, because it has a secular meaning of yoga, just connecting, you know. Uh, and receiving what you need and possessing what you have uh, securely, and Krishna says to the devotees in the Bhagavad Gita verse, I, I, I take care of that for them, their yoga and their shema, they don't have to worry. And in his commentary, his purport on that, Prabhupada talks about this in terms of their spiritual advancement, I, everything they need for their spiritual advancement, and I protect them from falling down. But Prabhupada quotes this verse in classes that he gives, and says refers to the devotees don't have to worry about their material welfare because Krishna says Shemabha, he doesn't say that in the Prabhupada, so that's another sense of it. Anyway, so that that word Shemam is there. Uh, they attain freedom from illusion, so that's their their protection. They per Shemam, and uh, then upon reaching my personal abode, Matstanam. Uh, they achieve, they perfectly understand uh, viduhu, uh, param brahman, brahman param, the absolute truth. So the BDT uh, translates this as three, it's freedom from illusion, reach Krishna's personal abode, and perfectly understand the absolute truth. Vishnu Chakravarti Thakur, the BDT gives no purport to this verse, it just says this. Vishnu Chakravarti says, uh, 
Krishna summarizes the best paths. Those who follow my instruction obtain results according to the yoga they choose. The followers of Nishkama Karma attain peace, Shemam. The devotees attain Vaikuntha, Matsdhanam. The jnanis attain Brahman. <laughs> so <laughs> they put them together different ways. Uh, and one thing I have to say, if you look consistently uh, in, in these, these chapters which describing different methods, for Vishnu Chakravarti Thakur tends to look to them as separate from each other, as discrete methods, whereas Prabhupada in general tends to see them more as a kind of continuity. You, you do pious activities, uh, you learn how to become free from attachments to the fruits of your work, then you uh, start becoming interested in the absolute truth, you come to the level of Brahman, then that position you understand the absolute truth. This is, yeah, the yoga ladder, right? That's described by a comment, uh, this kind of, I don't know if Prabhupada used the term yoga ladder, but that's, that's, that's what it's saying. So he sees it as step by step. Vishnu Chakravarti tends not to emphasize that much, so much. Uh, I, I don't know why. Um, but but I can I can speculate <laughs> a little bit because really he really kind of uh, uh, that, that he he emphasizes that nothing causes bhakti. The only cause of bhakti is bhakti itself, which means you 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 actually get it because you get the blessings of a devotee. Uh, now, there's always an issue. If somebody gives you a blessing, you can keep it or you can toss it aside. <laughs> so maybe these other things can be seen as preparatory. But it's a fact that by your own effort, you don't attain bhakti. Uh, I, I think people in the counterculture of the 60s would become interested in literation and were focusing on what they thought was you know, from Zen Buddhism or Hinduism, uh, becoming one with Brahman and becoming liberated from samsara, they believe that he would have never gotten to bhakti if Prabhupada didn't show up. It, ne- it never would have happened. But because they were eager for some transcendence, and when they saw that this 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 state of transcendence was an automatically concomitant factor along with bhakti, okay, you can understand. All you had to understand that bhakti was higher than what we thought was the highest thing because formally uh, when you would read about Hinduism or even have courses in a university uh, the version of bhakti as taught by the, the, the Ramakrishna mission was bhakti leads to jnana and to merging and you, be, you worship the Lord and then you merge with him and become one uh, uh, that's that's in, in Dr. Radhakrishnan's commentary on the Bhagavad Gita, and uh, everybody understood it. So what Prabhupada really did was give us the understanding that bhakti was higher, and then give us the means by which you can attain it. But anyway, there's this w- different ways of looking at it. Uh, uh, 
as freedom from illusion, reach my personal void, and then the understanding of absolute truth. And that's the actual sequence in the verse. Whereas uh, here, they, you know, he, he, it's a different, the followers of, of Nishkama Karma attain peace, the devotees attain Shaman, the devotees attain Vaikuntha, the Gyanis attain Brahman. That's how Jivan Chakravarti Thakur reads it. Uh, so that's the end of the, the chapter. And uh, I, so uh, this, I want to just uh, conduct a little survey of this, this, this chapter because we started a long time ago. We had several long breaks. So one may not remember what happened. Uh, this, this chapter 20, uh, which uh, the, has the title, uh, the full title is Pure Devotional Service surpasses knowledge and detachment. Vishnu Chakravarti Thakur refers it to a chapter concerning inferior and superior processes, somewhat more analytical look at the thing. So it begins uh, with uh, Uddhava's uh, objections. There's five verses where he has a doubt, a misgiving, you can say, not exactly a doubt. He puts it to Krishna, uh, and he says that the Vedic literature, which has uh, uh, vidi, uh, do's, and pratisheda, the don'ts, (laughs) the positive and negative injunctions, uh, what you ought to do and ought not to do, uh, that means there's a moral imperative to do it or not to do it. Uh, what you ought to do and what this is vidi. Uh, uh, and, and there's a whole set of verb forms in Sanskrit called vidi lin, which are those, those verbs uh, saying uh, ought. It's a Vedic injunction. You ought to do this. Uh, we're not very familiar with ought anymore because modern philosophers have decided you cannot get from an is to an ought. <laughs> and all we have is is, so the oughts are made up. And the thing is, ought comes, it is. There's, there has to be an authority. And if there is no authority, then it's just somebody's opinion, a sentiment. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And that moral good and bad uh, is analyzed uh, as, uh, uh, as so, something like uh, uh, X is good. I quote from my course in undergrad, X is good means I approve of X. <laughs> and because it's an ought, uh, so should you. <laughs> X is good means I approve of X. That's the analysis. And then for some reason I'm telling you, you should do it. And then I have to give my reasons. But nobody is quoting, you know, what the Gospels say or what the Bhagavad Gita says. Anyway, so this is vidi and pratisheda. So this is the arts. This is your order. And this literature, which consists of this positive and negative injunctions, focuses on the guna and dosha, the good and bad qualities of work. Uh, uh, and then it goes on to say that uh, on this basis, uh, 
there's a varnashram. They're inferior and, and superior uh, types of human beings according to piety and sin. These are the constant references uh, of a given situation. Uh, heaven and hell is there also. That's based on piety and sin. Uh, and so he says, without seeing, this is text 3, without seeing the difference between guna and dosha, how can one understand your own injunctions in the form of Vedic literature? Uh, instructions, they say. Your instructions in the form of Vedic literature which order one to act piously and forbid one to act sinfully. Furthermore, without these authorized Vedic literatures which ultimately award liberation, how can a human being achieve the perfection of life? Uh, uh, so then to understand all these things or attaining liberation or heaven or material enjoyment beyond our present capacity I'm just reading the translations here uh, everyone the, the, the forefathers the demigods the human beings consult the Vedic literature for these constitute the highest evidence the distinction, he finally says, between guna and dosha comes from your own Vedic knowledge, doesn't arise by itself, which is a fact. <laughs> Unless you have an authority, there is no... If the same Vedic literature subsequently nullifies such distinction between piety and sin, there will certainly be confusion. So that's his objection. And he's really dealing with his objection throughout the whole, cha whole chapter. Uh, and gives the true definition in this chapter of what actually causes piety and, and sin, which will again, that same statement will be the second verse of the next chapter, and was also mentioned in the previous chapter. So three times it gets mentioned. Uh, so then for the whole chapter, from this, from the sixth verse all the way to the end, it's a monologue completely by, by Krishna. And then through text 6 through 11, he is basically talking about the three paths. So here you get uh, 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 karma yoga, uh, jnana yoga, and bhakti yoga. They're, they're, they're mentioned here. He says I've, in the text 6, I presented three paths of advancement, knowledge, work, and devotion. So this is the, these are the means of elevation that, that he's presented. These are the three. Path of knowledge, the path of work. Uh, the path of work means nishkarma karma, karma yoga. Nishkarma karma yoga. Uh, if it's, otherwise it's just karma. <laughs> so it's working without attachments to the results. Huh? Uh, uh, so if, if you get that, so uh, we only have about five more minutes, so I'm just going to run through this quickly. So that, that's what's described here, these three uh, paths. Uh, and uh, 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 he mentions that jnana yoga is for people who are disgusted with material life. This karma yoga, for those who are not yet disgusted, I would still have desires, but still are going to try to minimize those desires. Uh, and then if somehow or other, notice this, somehow or other, 
by good fortune, which means basically by luck, <laughs> a chance or uh, of its yadritschaya is the Sanskrit word, something that happens of its kind of own accord. Uh, it's translated a different way, yadritschaya. Uh, it arises of its, somehow or other, of its own accord, by chance, by fate, you know, in different ways in different contexts. One develops faith in the hearing and chanting my glories, and that person is neither disgusted with the material world but not attached at the same time he achieves perfection. So he mentions here the qualifications. Uh, and as long as you're not completely, uh, uh, how shall I say, uh, disgusted, satiated, but satiated means satisfied to the point of wanting to throw up, uh, but here, with fruit of activity, uh, 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 that hasn't happened, and you don't have a taste for devotional service, then you have to act to the regular principles. Uh, uh, so this way he explains this. Uh, then at text 11 through 17, he describes uh, the benefits of a human body. I'll just That's there. And then... Uh, he begins with text 18, uh, going through 23. He gives directions for the transcendentalist. Uh, Vishwa Chakravarti regards 18 through 26 as describing the actions necessary for persons qualified for jnana. Uh, and so it, it starts that way. A transcendentalist, having become disgusted and hopeless for material happiness, controls the senses, develops detachment, that's, he can fix his mind on the spiritual platform without deviations. He's disgusted. Uh, and then it describes the same thing that we see in the sixth chapter of the Bhagavad Gita, how to control the mind, really. Uh, and they use the example of a horse and a bridle. And when you do this, you kind of let the see which way the horse wants to go, and you control it that way, and kind of and bring it under control, as described in text 21. And so this is sort of the beginning of control of the mind that's being described here. Uh, bring the mind under the control of sense using, using intelligence, strengthened by the mode of goodness. All this is described here. And then 22 to 24, Vishnu Chakravarti says this is the complete control of the mind. Uh, which involves the analytical the study of the world comes into being, going out of being. Like you can meditate on your own birth and your own death. Oh yeah, man, here it is now, but it wasn't, and won't be, and that's different. And the same way, cosmic processes in the same way. Uh, all material objects, you should think, they come into being and they go out of being. So... Uh, if you have no spiritual satisfaction by this kind of obser ob observation of the process of creation and of annihilation, you can start to understand the material world. And then uh, this will help you, 23, give a guidance by the spiritual master, give up the false identification of matter. Other people who study the world very carefully 
and don't have a spiritual master, they go nuts. That's why Friedrich Nietzsche spent his last years insane, under cared by his older sister uh, in Weimar. I saw there was other, I saw the place <laughs> where that, that was. And that's what happens. If you just look at the world with no hope and just want to look at it like it is, it's unbearable. That's because we're eternal. <laughs> and it's that, that's it. So anyway, and then he then with 24, he, he brings out this idea uh, through the yoga system, through logic and spiritual education, through worship of me, one should constantly engage his mind in remembering the personality of Godhead, the goal of yoga. So he again comes, comes to this point. And then uh, he mentions in text 25, uh, what happens if a yogi falls down, uh, an endeavoring transcendentalist? Uh, then by his very practice of yoga, he should burn to ashes the sinful reaction without any karmakanda process of atonement. And then in text 20, 26, he gives the actual standard. It is firmly dis- declared that steady adherence of transcendentalists to their respective spiritual positions constitutes real piety, and that sin occurs when a transcendentalist neglects his prescribed duties according to his platform that he's acting on. Uh, So that should be the standard. Uh, uh, So here he states it. This is the steady adherence in in your own position. Then, uh, text 27 and 28 describes the beginning stage of bhakti. Having awakened faith in the narrations of my glories, being disgusted with all material activities, knowing that all sense gratification leads to misery. Notice there's this tinge of gyan that disgusts with material activities there. You know that all sense gratification leads to misery but still being unable to renounce all sense enjoyment, my devotees should remain happy. So because of this, uh, this idea that I've accepted a certain standard, I understand that all about the world, but still I'm not in control of my senses all the time. By remaining happy, you should worship me with great faith and conviction. You don't, don't give up. Don't lose your faith. Don't become so depressed or morose you're going to quit. Uh, uh, so, but you should repent. You should be sorry that it happens, but you should go on with bhakti. Again, illustrating this idea that you don't deviate from your position. Even though you've fallen down, you're still good. And this is what lies behind apichetsudaracharo idea. Uh, if you are fixed on the path, if you're firm in that, even if you stumble, you don't give up, you're considered you're following that, that, the, 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 the process. And if you give up pure bhakti to do something else, uh, then uh, that would be the fault. And then, uh, the, starting with 29, up to the end of the chapter, pure bhakti is described. 
The first, these are the first uh, 28 and 20, 27, 28 is bhakti that's not yet there. But then when pure bhakti is there, when an intelligent, out 29, when an intelligent person engages constantly in worshiping me through loving devotional service as described by me, his heart becomes firmly situated in me, thus all material desires in the heart are destroyed. That's what happens to those material desires. Not that you seek them out one after the other, but just by increasing attachment to Krishna, then all the other material desires destroyed. And then it uses the same language you've seen in the, in the beginning of the Bhagavatam, the knot in the heart is pierced, all misgivings are cut to pieces, and the chain of fruitive actions is terminated when I am seen as the Supreme Personality of Godhead. Uh, and then he says, Therefore, for a devotee engaged in my loving service with mind fixed on me, the cultivation of knowledge and renunciation is generally not the means of achieving the highest perfection in this world. Uh, and then what we've just recently read, uh, everything that can be achieved by fruitive activities, penances, knowledge, detachment, mystic yoga, charity, religious duties, and all other means of perfecting life is easily achieved by my devotee through loving service unto me. And somehow or other my devotee desires promotion to heaven, liberation, or residence in my abode, he easily achieves such benedictions. Huh? In, in the Chaitanya Charitamrita, uh, Mahaprabhu said, defines Shraddha as the strong conviction, basically by, that by practicing devotional service, automatically all of the things will be achieved. And then he quotes the verse from the Bhagavatam that pouring water on the root of the tree and the leaves and branch are all nourished. So the same, uh, says the same thing here to Uddhava. And so then we come to the, uh, the conclusion uh, uh, describing a pure devotion. They don't desire anything but me. Even if I offer them liberation, they don't accept it. They say, whatever you want. I don't care. Whatever pleases you, that's what pleases me. Uh, and the Chaitanya Charitamrita Prabhupada says at the commentary at the end of the last verse of the Shashastakam, a, a, a devotee, a pure devotee, has no other way of experiencing happiness except by seeing that Krishna is happy in all respects. Uh, uh, then the verses we looked at today, then it is said that complete detachment is the highest stage of freedom. Uh, therefore, one who has no personal desires and does not pursue personal rewards can achieve loving devotional service. And then he again goes back to this guna and dosha in, in the penultimate verse 36, material piety and sin, which arise from the gunas of the good and evil of this world, is not in my devotees, uh, who have steady spiritual consciousness for me, and they achieve me because I'm beyond anything that anyone can understand by their material consciousness. Uh, and then the, the last verse person who seriously followed these methods of achieving me, now it's plural, which I have personally taught, attain freedom from illusion upon reaching my personal abode may perfectly understand the absolute truth. That's the summary of the chapter. You can take it here, it's continuous, but he does refer to methods in the plural, which you could give it a discrete reading. 
So that's the chapter that we have gone on to. And then next class, we will now... Uh, oh, by the way, let me just say one thing about this. Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita, Sarvadharman Pritjaja Mame Kam Sharanam Vajra. So this is that same statement, but very deeply analytically considered and gone into in some detail by Krishna and his very, very intelligent disciple, Uddhava. For the rest of us, Sarvadharman Pritjaja Mame Kam You just take it, you're fine. <laughs> but this is what's behind it, this, this kind of careful analysis of, of the process of devotional service. Bhagavad Gita is, is, is the, uh, you know, brings you to the point of surrender to Krishna, and then you understand it in full, you get to, it brings you to the, the Bhagavatam. It explains everything in detail. So the next verse, next chapter, excuse me, 21, we'll get the discussion of those people who are not fit for karma, jnana, or bhakti, karma yoga, bhakti yoga, jnana yoga, and so on. And again, it will talk about virtues, guna and dosha, and uh, explain this a little, uh, a little more. So this really gives you uh, an idea here, uh, uh, the, the, the Vedic path about, and here now we'll talk about restrictive material enjoyment and so on like that, just so we all know about it, we all understand it. Uh, 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 and so he'll discover a little bit about the Karmakanda uh, section of the Vedas uh, also. Okay, so that we'll pick up again, uh, Canto 11, Chapter 21, which is titled here, uh, which is full title, Lord Krishna's Explanation of the Vedic Path. So now we can open it up for discussion. I'm going to take the telephone. And I'm going to, where's my keypad on? Uh, yeah, where's my, uh, I'm going to put the and I'm going to take off the earphones and turn up the volume if it's not up all the way. The volume's turned up so people can call in if you have a question. Uh, and uh, you unmute your phone by pressing star six, ask a question. And then please don't forget to remute it so we don't hear any background noise uh, for everybody else. And then the people who are uh, watching on Ustream can text in uh, a question to this is up. And we have also a hand up in the yoga studio. <laughs> I know, whoever's first, you got first. Can I go back to ask something about text five? Text five, yes. I okay. wasn't here for it. I suspect you may have discussed what I'm going to ask about. It's one uh, distinction between piety and sin comes from Krishna and from the Vedas and not by itself. Yeah, well, I said that. So, uh, so a lot of atheists will argue and 
uh, and I, to a, to a degree, agree that large parts of morality and you know, moral theory or moral guidelines can be independently arrived at by you know, natural empathy and little, little thought about the nature of people in the world that large parts of morality actually can be derived independently. Yeah, I hope everybody can hear that. People have tried. I mean, there's, a, you know, philosophers all the time try to find, I mean, the morality that comes to us historically is derived from our traditional religions. Uh, uh, and people say, one philosopher, W.T. Stace, had a whole interesting essay saying it's barbaric to think that there's no God, that anything is possible. That's the statement Dostoevsky makes, and I guess the brothers Karamazov, that there is no God, everything is possible. You can do anything you want. Uh, 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 and that there are laws without a lawgiver. Well, they're, they're, yeah, well, where do they come from? Well, they come from human beings. Which human beings? Who does it? And then there are chances to, to justify it, utilitarianism, the, the greatest good for the greatest number. You calculate this way. Uh, Greek philosophers also, you know, the, uh, uh, the Epicureans, for example, good is what uh, gives you satisfaction. And, uh, you know, the aim of life is to maximize pleasure. So that's what, that's what morality is about. Good and bad is whatever maximizes pleasure. There's two schools of Epicureans. They split because the other one said is to maximize pleasure and minimize pain. Those people ended up being very austere. But there's some, anyway, there's some calculus that's made for good and evil, uh, for good and bad. And it's debatable. But, but it can always change. It, it fluctuates in the wind. It's, it doesn't have that same force. You know, it's, it's, it, 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 at least in the criminal courts, it's, uh, and, and some of it is enforced by, by police or lawyers, you know, your ex-wife or whatever, uh, uh, that you cause harm to other people. But, but basically, it's just some kind of utilitarian thing or we just have a common cultural agreement. And it's very interesting that if you go to another country, you may not find they have the same agreement. So it's relative. So it just, at best it deals with getting along in this world. It doesn't, it doesn't have anything. So you wouldn't consider even something like uh, the Golden Rule, for example. Or what some uh, even says. Yeah, do unto others as you would have others to do. You wouldn't consider that like a self-evident, you know, sort of human principle present in all cultures. Uh, well, the, the, the culture, the culture of of uh, of the people who make their living by by uh, screwing others, uh, that isn't their morality, is it? And what you do. Yes, their morality is whatever makes us rich. <laughs> that's moral. But even in cultures where that's prevalent, yeah, people will recognize it as as wrong or bad. Yeah, you you can you can make the argument. Yeah, we have an innate intuition of what goodness is, of why it's there. 
How did it get there? Well, you know, uh, evolution uh, explains it. It's explained by evolution, that, that people who had this culture, they stayed together, protected each other, so as a group they survived better. Uh, and that really evolution is about this not survival of individuals, but the survival of groups and so on and so forth, you know. Yeah. But it's their argument, you know. It doesn't have the same force that there is a lawgiver who gives the laws. I just want to say that. And, and so but, you know, that argument is made. And we would say, yeah, there's something innate because Krishna is in your heart and he's giving it to you anyway. You know, I, I mean, how is something innate in there? Uh, and, and so it would again be a, a, an accidental project of, of evolution that we, we, we come to that, and it's pretty good. Anyway, that's, you know, I mean, you can take, read book after book and book, book after book on the, on the, on the subject, and uh, easier to ask you. Uh, it's a field of philosophy I always stayed away from. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I was more at ease dealing with true and false rather than good and bad. <laughs> That's my duality. Anyway. But anyway, it's good you brought that up because that, that case is always there. But it's just barbaric to think, you know, just by English, but we just, you know, we just have an innate sense of decency that we do. And to say that if there's no God, none of these things apply. What about just basic decency? You know, that kind of that kind of argument is there. Any, anything else? Kendra asks, uh, he quotes text 26, which says, steady adherence of transcendentalists to their respective spiritual positions constitutes real piety, and that sin occurs when a transcendentalist neglects his prescribed duty. And his question, how does one determine what his spiritual position is is it possible to be improperly situated in one's spiritual position? Yeah, that's why you have a teacher. Uh, to their respective spiritual positions. See, the word that's used here for position is adhikar, which other means what you're qualified for. So s somebody should let you know what you're qualified for. It may even have good self-judgment. But if you try to do something that's either above or below your position, you'll run into difficulties. Uh, uh, that's, that's from that, but that's the word, uh, adhika. Uh, uh, and, uh, and, and, yeah, that, that, that means uh, uh, has to do with, yeah, what, what, you, what, you, what you're... It, what, you, what you are fit to do, really. Huh? Some people say, oh, he doesn't have the adhikara for this or that. Uh, he's just not qualified. The actual meaning of adhikar, by the way, in the dictionary, the first definition is authority, uh, government rule, administration, jurisdiction, title, rank, office. But then uh, the, the, the having the right 
to especially perform sacrifices. <laughs> the benefit that comes from it. That's the that's the adhikar. Uh, uh, so anyway, that's that's. Uh, Uh, and the word here, let me see, does it have a long A? Yeah, adhikara, with a long A, it becomes having uh, authorization or capability. Adhikara and adhikara. Long cap- authorization or capability. What you're capable of doing. Some people often misjudge their capabilities, of course. But that, that's what it means. Uh, and generally, what you're capable of doing, you know, when you're young, uh, they have standardized tests <laughs> or teachers or whatever else who, who, who tell you these things. So when it says here, according to their qualification, respective peer position, uh, the Swami, when the jnani or the devotee remains situated according to his qualification, that, that's the that's the adhikar. That then it's a good quality. It's saguna. Okay, adhikar. Maharaji asks, "Yes, the basis is in the beginning, you mentioned about being free from all selfish material and spiritual desires. What do you mean by selfish spiritual desire? Are you interested in your own liberation more than anything else? That you really, this is the disgust of the material world and that you're consuming ideas to get free from it. Uh, and also, you may, may be some attachment to some of the byproducts of, the spirit of renunciation, which is like yoga cities and things like that, that may also, may also come about. Uh, they're kind of on the borderline between material and spiritual, I suppose, but, but, uh, but it's achieved by renouncing. But, uh, you know, there, there is a kind of power you get by yoga city and people who are attached to powers, they discover this is a better one to have than than, uh, than any other kind of power. That would be material. But mainly I think that means the desire for liberation. Mesh Krishna asks, Hare Krishna Maharaj, we are studying the scriptures with an idea to understand Krishna and to apply the principles of devotional service. Is this act of study to get knowledge, bhakti or knowledge? Uh, it's to get bhakti. But, but it's not that bhakti excludes knowledge. I mean, you can be a pure devotee and be illiterate and not know anything. There's stories like that, of course, like the, like the illiterate Brahmin who uh, was told by his spiritual master, I guess Mahaprabhu encountered him somewhere in a temple. He was uh, a Brahmin, but somehow or other he was illiterate. He was offered by a spiritual master to read Bhagavad Gita every day and was just sort of turning the pages and crying and everybody's laughing at him because they know he can't read. 
And then he explains to Mahaprabhu, I'm just thinking uh, about, about Krishna and Arjuna uh, uh, on the battlefield and how that Krishna became a servant and chariot driver of his own devotee and, you know, part of over Krishna. Do you understand, Bhagavad Gita? You know, really. So, so in, in, in one sense, uh, it may not be necessary. But if you know how to read, then you should, this is what you should read, <laughs> not other things. Uh, and so generally, it's, it's one of those things that's favorable to the, that kind of reading and that kind of study is favorable to devotional service. Uh, and, and so, you know, we had some very highly educated people in our line, like Sanatana Goswami, Rupa Goswami, Jiva Goswami, super well-educated. I mean, they know Sanskrit and Bengali and Urdu and Persian, uh, Parsi or whatever, they knew all these languages and they had a huge repertoire uh, uh, of learning which they then used in Krishna's service. So that's, that's devotional service. To want to develop for its own sake or independently of the service of Krishna is a waste of time. Dinesh also asked, by the term knowledge mentioned in the past, knowledge, work, and devotion, does it mean it is Sankhya? Uh, yeah, it could be, it could be uh, uh, the, the non-theistic Sankhya, uh, or, or it, it could be uh, also Jnana Yoga. I mean, the, 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 the non-theistic Sankhya is about freeing oneself from the material bondage, but there's no God in it. And there's not even merging into an impersonal Brahman. It's just a sort of, uh, in the atheistic Tankya, they're just a bunch of eternally isolated, liberated spiritual souls. They're individual souls. They don't become all of Brahman. Uh, and that's what they are. And you just discriminate, you understand, by while practicing severe austerities, you un- understand the difference between matter and spirit. And you are definitely re- so, rever- you know, revolts, revolted by the world. There's worldly revulsion there. So this is, this is the way the atheistic Sankhya works. You know, bhakti uh, is is beyond this, but but it, it also includes it in a transformed way. Just like you can be very active in the world in bhakti, but it's not karma or even karma yoga. But that that idea of acting with the senses has been included, but it's 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 transformed. It's, uh, when being raised up to a higher position, it becomes transformed. It's not even just nishkama karma yoga. It's just service for Krishna. Uh, it's engaging in Krishna's service, but it's, it, it's, it's active. You're not afraid of the results of your action. You don't have there, you know, automatically this nishkama is there because you, you're, you do have a desire. 
but it's a desire to satisfy Krishna, to satisfy the Mahaprabhu, the spiritual master. That's a desire. It should be a very strong desire. But it's not a material desire. Do you write has a question on the phone? Uh, you're on speaker. Go ahead. Oh, hi, Krishna. Um, I have a f- sort of follow-up question to Kendra's question, um, in which you said that if that someone, if they're not qualified um, for a particular path, because my understanding was that none of us were qualified for bhakti except by the mercy of, of, of the devotee. So if someone um, takes up the path of bhakti, even to the point of initiation, I mean, according to the 20th chapter, they should not give up and keep trying. But many people, if they can't do it, um, they then just give up everything and so is it just another mistake to retreat to some lower process or is that a um, reasonable is it a mistake to retreat to, well they usually retreat to something I don't know if it's a lower process or not uh, actually so far as I understand what gives one the qualification is bhakti is just the mercy of a devotee that, that that that's that that's what would would give it so you 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 that you you fail in something with, with bhakti the fact that you can't control your senses doesn't mean that you you uh, are unqualified so qualifications is is you you do you you are understanding that the material world is temporary. You really don't want to fall into sense gratification. You really do want to achieve love for Krishna. But still you are not uh, uh, able to do so. Uh, uh, so the, the, the bhakti is there, and I figure people are all, all qualified for it. Uh, uh, we, we do bring people, people come to bhakti, who turn out to be unqualified in the sense that they cannot follow even the basic principles of Krishna consciousness, which to me, in some ways, in the early stages of bhakti, um, it's understandable. Uh, But what tends to happen to people, why they seem to give up on it, is not so much sins, uh, as it is offenses, because uh, in a sense all sins are an offense in, in a way, but there are offenses which aren't sins. So, like for example, they're just mental to think of the spiritual master as this, that, or you know, they're just just mentally. Uh, if you commit a mental sin, there's no punishment for it. But an offense, some of the offenses are are mental. So therefore, we we stress that one one should try to try to perform devotional service uh, uh, while trying to give up offenses. Those people who seem to fail, in one sense, don't. 
because whatever they've done stays with them. And, and you start again uh, from next birth, from where you left off. That we understand it's not lost. Uh, so your qualification may not have been very high, but something is there. So we try to try to uh, as best we can uh, uh, be merciful but not stupid. Uh, and if it's a quality a qualification, if it, you know if, it, if there's an error, we tend to err on the side of mercy, which I think is right. If Prabhupada hadn't done that, nothing would have ever got gotten done. But uh, those of us, we also understand those of us who have taken in this life to Krishna consciousness, Prabhupada said in some places it's a continuation from a previous verse, so that means that, you know, last life we failed. Otherwise we we wouldn't be on this planet. So <laughs> you can take it, you know. I think it's really healthy to say, well, I blew it the last time. I can't remember what it was, but I know I must have. So now I have to be more careful of this life. <laughs> and it helps us become a little humble, too, I think, you know, congratulating ourselves that we've gotten the mercy of Krishna because we're so wonderful. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, that, so, so in Bhakti, there, there isn't any loss. And Krishna says this in the Bhakti, even if you make a little advancement, it's better you make that little advancement than you give up altogether. I have another, um, it's just like a little comment. Um, I, was, uh-huh. I was told, I remember hearing a class, I remember I, I think I was in Mayapur, um, this is sort of information that um, unfortunately I can't remember who typically of me, but saying that when we, that story of the Brahmin who was illiterate, it, it meant that he didn't know Sanskrit, not that he was totally illiterate, you know, um, Okay. Yeah. Anyway, it's not so important and it's irrelevant to the conversation. So Domini is saying that in the, she heard an explanation that when it said it was illiterate, it was referring to the fact that he didn't know Sanskrit. Presumably he could he could write in his his native language or read and write in his native native language, but not Sanskrit. Which is, of course, as good as illiterate. (laughs) (laughs) Which is encouraging to me because I really fail it. Thank you, Hare Krishna. Okay, Hare Krishna. Yeah, sorry? If I could make a comment on Dwight's question also. You described uh, earlier that the definition of adhikar or qualification Mm -hmm. is not just qualification but authorization. Mm-hmm. So if a devotee who's a, supposed to be an authority says chant Hare Krishna or become a devotee, that's mm-hmm. what then the authority is saying yeah. Yeah, so that's authorization. Uh, yeah, uh, that's Adhikar. Yeah, that's Adhikar. Yeah, that's true. Gail has a question on the phone. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. Hare Krishna. Krishna. <laughs> yeah, I just wanted to follow up on um, your answer just a little bit ago, where you said that um, the reason why um, people tend to fall away from Christian consciousness is not so much sin, but you know the mental offenses. I just wanted more clarity on what exactly 
you mean? Like examples of what you mean by such offense? Well, yeah. So, 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 I was making a distinction between sins and offenses, and that's the offenses are more deadly than a sin, <laughs> in a way. Uh, uh, so they're two different. The, the reason I brought up mental offenses, not all the offenses are mental, mental, but uh, to blaspheme a devotee, uh, you can do it in your head and it's just as devastating or almost as devastating as sharing your thoughts with others. Uh, it's bad for us. So in Kali Yuga, uh, if we commit a sin mentally, uh, uh, we don't suffer the same karmic reaction as if we did it, we committed the act. Uh, uh, if I just desire to steal uh, somebody's property, uh, in the previous ages, I would get the same reaction if it actually took, if it, as if I actually took it. But here, if I, if I don't, if I just desire it, and maybe I don't do it, only because the opportunity doesn't arise, not because of guilt feelings or anything, just because it's not possible, uh, I don't get the reaction. I mean, how many people want to kill somebody? I mean, in every traffic situation, <laughs> people are wishing each other dead all the time. <laughs> but you don't have to suffer for it unless you actually commit vehicular homicide. <laughs> Because you're so mad at the SOB, <laughs> cutting you off like that. <laughs> so that's the difference between. So some offenses are mental. Uh, so there's a reality. If it's, it's, if even if it's just a, a mental thing, uh, to, to consider the glories of chanting Hare Krishna as imagination, just to think that is an offense. Uh, and so there's several of them that are that are like that that are that are that are mental and they still so, so it's not a, a distinction between mental offenses and physical sins they're just different categories of things. Generally, a sin would be an offense unless you committed some sinful activity and, and was sorry and repented and tried to do better. Uh, uh, so, but generally, all all sins are, are would be an offense, it, because it would be like disobeying the order of the spiritual master to commit some sinful activity. If I go and I eat meat, uh, that's a that's a that's a that's a sin. Uh, it may be an offense, uh, also, because I'm disobeying the order of the spiritual master. If I see I, I ate meat, I lost control. I'm sorry. I'm you know even mentally begging for forgiveness. That's a little different. But if then I persist in this behavior and and don't uh, and and don't repent of it or try to give it away, then it, then it also becomes a, a, an offense. Uh, for example, that's just an example. Uh, so that, that there are different things, but but. Uh, um, you, you know uh, the the the, uh, the offense of inattentiveness while chanting. That's exactly not a sin, but it definitely is an offense against the holy name. And that's that's the 
that's the major offense from which all other offenses grow. There are different ways of being inattentive, really not thinking about Krishna. Uh, so they're diff- just different categories of things. And that, that's why one has to be very, very careful not to commit offenses against devotees. I was just re- reading this morning this account. I was reading the, the account in the uh, Chaitanya Bhagavat about uh, uh, the uh, Pundarik Vijaniti, this uh, one that Lord Chaitanya called my father. Uh, uh, Pundarik Vijaniti, uh, well, he was older, um, and uh, he was a Brahmana, and he, he was from uh, what's now uh, what's now Bangladesh, but he had a house in Mayapur, I guess, and, and, and Navadip, I guess he went to teach there, and, and things like that. And uh, so the story tells how that uh, eventually he became the initiating guru uh, of Gadadhar Pandit. Pundarik Vijanidhi huh? became Pund- the initiating Pundarik Vijanidhi, yeah. That's oh, Gadadhar Pandit. Huh? He became the initiating guru of Gadadhar Pandit. Yeah. Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. And But his friend was Mukunda Datta, the other follower of Lord Chaitanya, who's a physician, who took uh, Gadadhar Pandit to meet Pundarik Vijanidhi and was describing to him what a great devotee he was. But Pundarik Vijanidhi was a little unusual for a devotee, and so when they went into his place in Mayapur, they saw this extremely well-dressed man with impeccably done hair sitting on a beautiful couch of some kind with, with, with uh, you know, gorgeous uh, cloth and, and, and pillows and a brass uh, metal uh, works, all, all decorative works all around with also beautiful brass lamps with uh, with with uh, fires in them he had he had gorgeous uh spittoons because he was chewing pan uh you know betel, betel nut pan he had a very special pan container that was quite ornate and uh chewing his betel pan and he also had other beautiful water pots uh, around him and he was being fanned by servants on either side with big peacock feathers fans. Like a very rich man, really enjoying his riches. It's what it looked like. Uh, so, so, so when Gadadhar Pandit saw this, he immediately had a misgiving. Is this a great Vaishnava that Makunda Datta has explained to me? I can't figure out that. Look at look at him. He's like a big worldly enjoyer. <laughs> and Makunda Datta, just looking at him, could understand what he is thinking. So he wanted to spare him the offense. So as soon as possible, he started reciting verses describing the pastime of Lord Chaitanya accepting Putana as his mother that even though he was his enemy and tried to kill him, by the very fact that he drank her milk, he accepted as a mother, and she got freed from all her sinful reaction, and this is how merciful Krishna is, that even his enemies get saved like this. 
So Mukunda Das is reciting these verses, uh, and some are in Sanskrit and some are in Bengali, about, about Putana. And when he hears this Pundavijaniti, his hair starts to bristle and stand on end. Tears begin flowing torrentially out of his eyes. Goosebumps er- you know, erupt in all his skin. He starts shaking uncontrollably, and he goes into this this complete meltdown of, of, of physical symptoms of bhava that like, uh, was amazing, and it took him a while to recover. And so then Mukunda could understand that he's a very advanced devotee, and he felt really bad about thinking of him that this is just an ordinary materialist. And so, so, so that's a kind of interesting, you know, don't judge people very quickly <laughs> because you don't know sometimes. Who, who people are, and it's better to err on the side of generosity than err on the side of, of seeing something wrong with him. That's you an said, example. You said upon seeing that Mukunda Dutta felt that, but it was... It was oh, excuse me, excuse me. I'm, I'm sorry. It was Gadadhar Pandit felt very bad that he had these bad thoughts about Pundarik Vijaniti. He was just an unusual person. Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur claims yeah, he was a great devotee, but, but, like, but like Lord Chaitanya, he also was disguised. Lord Chaitanya, until, you know, he took sannyas, basically, he, 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 or just before he took sannyas, he, he wasn't known as a devotee. He was known as, as a, I'm better than you are, I can defeat you, wrangling pundit, you know. Uh, that, that 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 he did, he, he was disguised, and so also was Pundarik. Because Pundarik Vijaniti, uh, it, it was actually the father. In, in Krishna Lila, was the father of Radharani. This is this is explained. Really? Uh, wow. Yeah, yeah. That's that why means Vishapano, no? referred to him as my father, Pundarik Vijaniti. He he was actually Radharani's father in Krishna Lila. Does that mean Vishapano? Yeah, it would be, huh? Wow. Mm-hmm. I think that's just a story. Anyway, just, I was just having to read it this morning. I was actually listening to a tape of somebody reading Chaitanya Bhagavat, and they got the part I had to... Then I, I have and now the Chaitanya Bhagavat with, with the commentary by Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur, so I had to then look at it and check out what was going on what was going on and read another translation and the, what then the narrator was reading. So anyway, that's, and I should have been preparing for class. So I thought I'd bring it up. <laughs> okay. Yeah, so just um, just to repeat, you, you said that some examples of, of offenses that aren't necessarily sin are like inattentive chanting, um, this. Disobeying the spiritual master, I know that was another one, right? That, you know, it's not, you don't get sinful reaction for it, but, you know, there are offenses. Was there another example besides those two? Uh, well, let me, let me, I have to look at the list of the ten offenses right now. <laughs> oh, I can always but, recite them. But would yeah, you but, say generally the ten, the all ten are like me, are mental offenses? Well, to that, consider the glories of chanting Hare Krishna as imagination, right? Mm-hmm. That's just to consider, right? Did I mention that one already? Not to have complete faith in the chanting of the holy names, to maintain material attachments, even after understanding so many instructions in this matter, right? Mm-hmm. Just not to have complete faith. 
Mm-hmm. By the way, the, the, the offense is not having material attachment. That's just our sorry condition. But it arises as an offense when you're maintaining it. Uh, mm-hmm. When you're not saying, Krishna, please destroy this attachment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And not say, Krishna, please give me pure devotional service plus money. <laughs> For example. Okay. All right. Thank you very much, Mother Mary. You're welcome. Hi, Krishna. Hi, Krishna. Okay. All right. Thank you all very much for uh, helping me explore these famous, most deep philosophical canto of the Srimad Bhagavatam. And so now we'll start uh, next week with Chapter 21, Lord Krishna's Explanation of the Vedic Path. Thank you very much. Srila Prabhupada Ki Jai. Srimad Bhagavatam Ki Jai.